Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben Mergy. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi.、Um, I, I don't know. I think this might be the 35th, 36th episode of this particular podcast.、Uh, if you would like to find out more, I do have a Facebook page for Not That Kind of Rabbi. And、uh, if you go there, you'll see my occasional posts. I try to do at least two a week. I also have a donate button if you're interested in donating. Some people have been doing that very kindly, and I truly appreciate it. Helps me to make sure that I can keep doing this for you.、Uh, as well, I have a website, kavana.ca. Kavana in Hebrew is intention. What is your intention when you wake up in the morning? How do you follow through on your intentions? Those are all things worth examining. Kavana is K A V A N A H.ca. Uh, and if you、uh, would like, you can go there because that's where I center my spiritual counseling.、Uh, besides being a broadcaster, I'm an ordained spiritual director, and、uh, I do have clients and I do groups as well. I've got one coming up in a little while,、uh, and that one is going to be、uh, online, of course, on Zoom.、Uh, if you want any information on it, it's at the end of this month, and it's on aging to saging. How do we move from just being considered old people? To actually being human beings that are elders. You know, I've always thought, you know, if I was in another culture and I walked down the street in elder robes, you would say, hello, how are you? And here it's, you know, you're a doddering old fool, mostly.、Uh, we de commodify, as it were, as we get older. We're not as much used to the consumptive society. So, We get kind of pushed to the side of the road. And I guess that's why you hear a fair amount of people talk about the terror of retirement if they've had daily jobs. This idea that you get a pizza party, a pat on the back, keep in touch, and then you're alone. And for a lot of people, that, that's really not a good thing.、Uh, yes, it's great not to have to grind day after day to make a living, but it's also a social thing. And certainly in this pandemic time, we've really realized. How social we really are as human beings, and how hard it is to, to not connect.、Um, on the spiritual side of things, I'm also encouraging any、uh, Jewish men out there. There is、uh, something called JMR, Jewish Men's Retreat. 29 years men have been getting together in Connecticut at a beautiful retreat center, the Isabella Friedman.、Uh, Jewish Retreat Center. I've been doing it for about seven years, and I'm part of the Wisdom Council of that particular organization. And、uh, this year we're doing it virtually. So people don't have to schlep, they don't have to get in the car, they don't have to get down to Connecticut.、Uh, it's prohibitive at this point, obviously, for just about every reason you can imagine. So what we're doing instead is a Friday night and a whole Saturday of programming and pathways and get togethers and small groups. And it, it's really For those、uh, Jewish men who are like, nah, I don't really care about it anymore, this is a real reboot. It's a beautiful experience. So, if you want more information on that, go to menschwork.org, menschwork.org, and you'll see, or just Google Jewish Men's Retreat, JMR 29, and you'll get to the site.、Uh, we're still taking people on within about four weeks' time, and it would be great to have you there.、Uh, so, consider it. Won't you?、Um, today I was taking a nice walk, a beautiful walk.、Uh, in Hamilton, there are many beautiful trails that you can go on, waterfalls, of course, but there's all, all kinds of trails. And I was on the Shadok Trail today and just walking with the leaves turning and listening to a guided meditation from、uh, 
Muji. Uh, Muji, uh, I was turned on to by Harry Manx when he was on the program. Um, and he turned me on to the whole idea of Vedanta, Avaita Vedanta uh, Hindu practice. And I guess the North American best exemplar of that kind of philosophy of total presence is uh, Eckhart Tolle, uh, who talks about power of now. He was a huge hit. You know, about 20 years ago, he started really making a, um, a name out of that whole idea of the power of now. But really, in, in Vedanta, the, the, the beauty of things is that there is no past and no future. There is this moment that the past is a collage of, of you know, ego constructions of who we th told everybody we were and how we changed and told people we were somebody else later. And the resistance in life comes from just living in ego. How, what do you mean a traffic jam? Why am I in a traffic? No, you are the traffic jam. This is the isness of the situation is that without you, there wouldn't be a traffic jam. So presence is about accept radical acceptance of the actual moment that we live in and the cultivation of that through the practice of meditation and stillness um, is about the only way you can get there. You can't talk or think your way towards it, but it's knowing that there is a self and then there is that ego construction that moves, con all the changing moving parts don't affect the self. And the best way I can describe that, when I was a kid, everybody who showed up from Morocco, uh, we took them immediately to Niagara Falls. That's what immigrants do. We take people to Niagara Falls and go, look, really big waterfall. Uh, and I used to stand right at that place where you could see the water go over the edge. And I was hypnotized by it because the rock was perfectly still. It was, it had a sense of actual moment of stillness and the water was relentlessly changing and falling over and falling over and falling over. But there was that rock. And when you listen to the kinds of things that are on these meditations, really what they're talking about is there is a self that is eternal within us, but there is an always changing piece that we fixate on. How am I going to do? What's tomorrow going to be like? You know, I really regret that whole relationship I had with that person for four years where we really, we thought we were friends, but we weren't. So you're never here. But that rock is always there. It's the water that changes. So I, I really love that imagery. And if that helps at all with anybody, uh, look up Muji, uh, M-O-O-J-I. Uh, Harry turned me on to him and uh, I'm really grateful for it. My guest today on Not That Kind of Rabbi, somebody I've known because we've kind of swum in the same circles and lakes every once in a while uh, of the cultural scene of Toronto, um, was always somebody who I just thought, wow, I what would it be like to just actually write as beautifully as he writes and to, and to take everything that's happening and distill it. The, the power of poetry is in the distillation of human existence, of human condition, and being able to put it in a way that without my even knowing it, it touches my heart bounces over my head and goes into my heart. And my guest is somebody who has done that to much acclaim over his professional life and has had a very rich personal life as well with some great challenges as we all have, but he's had some great challenges and has shared some of the 
wisdom that he's gotten from those challenges over the years. So I want to welcome Robert Priest to uh, Not That Kind of Rabbi. How are you doing, my friend? Oh, I'm, I'm doing well right now. Thank you. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, too. We can see each other on Zoom, but they can only hear right. us. <laughs> right. I should just say that I'm not that kind of priest, by the way. So. Well, exactly. <laughs> I think we should do a parallel show. Right. <laughs> what, what, were you brought up with any religion? Uh, not really. Um, my, my father, a, a British sailor, was uh, very strongly atheistic. Um, thought that churches were just made to squeeze money out of you. Uh, but my mother kind of secretly taught us, you know, the, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer. And um, she, you know, deflected some kind of, god belief and we got it in the schools in the 50s anyway they read the bible to us and we said the prayers in public school in those days yes uh we went to a school what was 97 percent jewish kids and we did uh the christian thing and you know the, the lord's prayer which is for both testaments but it was still very much a you know and uh, christmas was a very big deal and we all were kind of <laughs> awkward about it <laughs> Yeah, it was a weird thing. Did you grow up in Toronto? Uh, well, I started out in England until uh, about till the age of four. It was just post-war stuff, and we then came over to Canada. And I lived in Scarborough until I was uh, 20, I think. And then, yeah, then it's pretty much been Toronto, a couple of years in Peterborough. Hmm. Yeah. So what was your mother trying to teach you about God? Um, I think, what was she trying to teach me? I've never even thought about that. Um, I think maybe that there is one, um, and that you could, um, you could ask for stuff, you know, you could pray, <laughs> you could pray. <laughs> um, but it didn't come with much, you know, what you'd call dogma or anything or, or reading of the Bible or, you know, it was just like, well, mom believes in this stuff and dad really doesn't. And so that was the lesson in itself, right, in the kind of relativity of people's faith. Yeah, I've always found that, you know, I've never needed someone else who I love or is close to me to believe what I believe or have the faith that I have. Hmm. I just thought, why? Like, this is personal. It's my own, my own thing. It's interesting, your mother, that you can get things. It, it, it's sort of, to me, the kind of Santa Claus God. Right. right. Yeah. Something Naughty like and that. nice and, and all that sort of stuff. I find with me and other people, like these days, everything is coming to us pretty much through words, through language, uh, which is a kind of a virtual reality. So that when people um, who aren't bothering me talk about God, or if I'm in a situation where people pray or, um, you know, they use whatever words they use for their deity, I'm fine. You know, I, I oh, they, you know, uh, you know, I kind of think the universe is pretty mysterious and magical. Mm. Uh, you know, with the fact that we are here—that's pretty miraculous. So, uh, I can—I I don't have any walls up, particularly about it. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at in general, and I also don't have—I guess the only dogma I've got really if, uh, is is my innate sense of morality which is you know and i guess whatever i've um, absorbed from the culture that makes sense to me about ethics and morality has your morality changed over the years oh yeah oh yeah it has yeah um 
like I told you, my dad was a, a British sailor in just, you know, the end of the Second World War and up till, I think, 53. And, you know, my dad taught all of our, my brother and sister and me, if anybody, you know, bullies you, you go and get a big, a, a big, you know, piece of wood and you see where they go and you wait, you wait around a corner. And when they go by the corner, you bash them with it. You know, and there was, I, yeah, I did that. <laughs> um, you know, um, so could do yeah, that. I, I'm not there anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I, I got to say, though, that teaching ran deep and, and it, it was in my viscera, you know, for a long time that 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 impulse of of you settle things with basically what would that be? Revenge and a little ounce of prevention. Um, I never did that, by the way, I would like to say publicly. That I, there's no dented heads from my wrath at this point that I know of. But he was more an eye for an eye kind of guy? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. Um, and and just like you take the uh, appropriate action, none of this, um, you know, muley mouth, you know, uh, pissing about really. Just uh, you, you, and, then, and then same thing with raising the kids, of course, you bash them. Uh, right. If 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 you know you want change in your children, basically, there wasn't a conversation, at so, least not with the mouth. It was a, a very much a manual conversation with your ass. And what did you think of that as you grew up? Oh, well, yeah, I didn't like it. Uh, you know, I just, no. Um, as I grew up, yeah, well, yeah, it, it it wasn't the right way to go with a person like me. I think I don't know. You know, I've got that training now. Right, there's certain things that have been manually administered to my uh, my being that um, that go deep um it's not how i you know chose to be with my children although you know i was far from perfect and far from unphysical with them um yeah i i don't approve of that way of raising children but you know i see kids nowadays acting up and I just like what that kid, what that kid, you know, like it's this stuff does not it's deep, just evaporate, yeah, yeah. you know. It, uh, so no, no, I was brought up in a Mediterranean home, and um, there was a lot of you know casual hitting. It was used as kind of grammar. Yeah. What do you think you're doing? You know, <laughs> you know, a semicolon. Okay, here comes two exclamation marks. This one's going to hurt. Uh, but I, I really, uh, it really was a. a quite detrimental to me. I, I was very unhappy uh, about that border being crossed, that physical border. And, right. Right. It violated, you know, uh, and I and I was quite angry with them. Uh, mm. And, and I, I think it's a great triumph as parents to not do that to our kids. It, and yet, it, like you said, inside us is this thing of, you know, if I just gave them one whack right now, that would change the conversation. But then yeah. I just thought, no, I, I just can never do that, you know? Right. And I mean, and aside from that particular method of crossing boundaries, there's definitely other, other ways of, uh, you know, going past where someone wants you to go and getting yeah. into their being. And uh, uh, that was, I, I certainly experienced some of that. And I'm certainly not talking about sexual abuse, thank God. Uh, but yeah, I mean, oh boy, and I and and that sort of smother mother kind of stuff, um, you know, is very much alive in the world. And 
you know, I'm talking to my kids, um, they've, they've got their complaints and we're fine. You know, I think we're, we're, we're on very warm talking terms, but I, there was a time when they carried as big a chip around about me as I did about my dad, you know, so. Do you, do you think that's inevitable? Um, I mean, I not know. all the time, but for a lot of people. Well, for a lot of people, but you know, I, I don't know for sure. This is, I just get this from, from movies, but this um, in cultures where it's like honor your father and mother and honor mm -hmm. your, your elders, which you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, especially if you're the eldest son who's going to inherit everything, maybe not, or, or, or you know, maybe not as overtly um, this resentment or, or this, you know, wanting to call people to account so i don't know but it's certainly in me and in our culture and but my, my parents by the way they're 91 and 92 now wow and it's a different world you know <laughs> yeah it's a different world yeah oh is it ever yeah when you were a young man you know when you were okay high school's finished I'm going to move downtown. What did you think you were going to do by moving downtown? Like, did you have a mission or were you just like, ah, I guess I should go see what's happening? Oh, well, you know, I knew from the time I was um, eight years old that my destiny was to be a writer. Uh, hmm. It was just totally foundational in me. Um, it was ne never anything I questioned and it was always the vector. Um, I, I had, I had a, a sort of an economics plan, which was, I was good at math. So I went to university of Waterloo and studied math. Um, I was going to get my master's degree, go into law, be a lawyer, go into politics, become prime minister of Canada and then write. Um, and, um, you know, I, I lasted four months at university of Waterloo and then I, I got a co-op job at Honeywell Controls, right back in Scarborough, right back in my parents' house, which I got thrown out of quite quickly. Um, and for, so for a little while, I lived in, a, in a, a house in Scarborough where there was another guy a little older than me who was a writer. And, um, you know, that just consolidated, you know, forget all this other stuff about, you know, finding a way to support yourself, be a writer. Um, and it was those days, you know, you could get unemployment insurance and, Everybody was taking uh, mescaline acid. And um, so, you know, eventually I moved downtown. Really, I guess I got a job and I loved it downtown. It was just Young Street was just so exciting. Um, but, you know, I, I lasted downtown I, less than half a year before I kind of uh, had a, I think, a breakdown um, and wound up in a a spa. Yeah, right. I remember this going into this first into into Wellesley Hospital's psychiatric ward. Um, and it's never been clear. There was there a plan because at the time it was James Taylor. Okay, James Taylor was a hit, and he had been in some kind of psychiatric mm -hmm. place. Um, and so it was kind of cool. It was a romance to be in a psychiatric place. And you didn't have to worry about earning your living. So I thought I could do that. I could get into one of those places and, and write, you know, mm. and I, mm. I did, I got in, but you know, as I was perhaps putting on this display, I'm never sure I was weeping and I was just falling apart. So, 
you know how life is. You sometimes think you're fooling everybody, but you're just fooling yourself. Uh, but I was in there for really less than a week. Um, and then I came out and, uh, you know, I guess I managed to go ahead. I was writing like crazy by then. I was writing a lot. And um, what was that week like? What was that week like? You know, um, it was okay. Um, I fell in love with a, a, a girl who had anorexia nervosa. Um, first time I had ever heard of that. Wow. Um, after, after five days against my express command, they brought in my parents. And, um, you know, I, I haven't mentioned how little my father speaks, but, um, and suddenly my mother got up and left me with my father. And I was like, oh, man. You know, and I didn't know what to say. And I, I said, you never talk to me. And he said, I never had nothing to say, boy. <sighs> I get a little, little chunk, you know, um, I, you know, I don't know what that meant. I meant whether it resolved. But it was a anything. moment. It was a moment. That, it was that, a moment. It's a know. moment where you reach out finally and say what you wanted to say and you, what you get back is it must have been heartbreaking. It was a little heartbreaking. It was a, it was a story I could tell. It was a little mm. a little bit of bitterness in it. You know, I would say that um, maybe ten years ago, Christmas, my dad took me. Aside, I want to talk to you. Oh God, what's this? He took me sort of towards the basement. I go, oh, Hope's not going to beat me. Um, and and uh, he said, um, your mother's told me I was a bit rough on you as a boy. I said, yes. And, and tears came to his eyes and he said, oh, well, I'm sorry. Mm. You know, and I sort of put my hand on his shoulder and I said, that's, that's, that's all long forgiven, which it was in, you know, in my mind. Right. Um, you know, so that's a, a really, that's more what we were talking about just yeah. now, about the moment. That's a moment that uh, is hallowed. Well, you know, thank God he's lived long enough to do, say it. Yes, yeah. You yeah, know, for sure. Because a lot of lies that doesn't get said and nobody knows the better and off we go into the next realm and a lot of unresolved feelings for a lot of people that way. Yeah. There was healing in it, um, and uh, it's not easy. I know it's not easy for a British military man to say sorry or for or to let a tear fall. So I appreciate yeah. it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, as a parent, when it comes out of my mouth, I'm sorry. I realize it just wasn't on in my house when I was a kid. Parents are not to apologize. They're to be respected. Well, yeah. And that was the tenor of the times. That was the, the teaching of the times, really. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I remember speaking to a friend of mine who was English and he'd gone to a public school, you know, posh school. And uh, he'd been caned. They hit him with the stick. Yeah. Yeah, and he, and I said, "Well, what was that like?" And he said, "Well, you know, I turned out okay." <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I thought, "Wow, talk about internalizing brutality." Yeah, you know, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah. not going to argue it. It's what you're saying, right? 
I remember having that view. I remember around that time back that I was talking about when I first went, when I came out of that first little psych ward, thinking that, you know, well, I'm here. I'm, this is how I've arrived. I, I, I'm on my path. So I guess it was all necessary. Um, it sounds like that psych ward was almost a, a romantic notion. You know, I'm a, maybe I'm a mad writer. You know, maybe yes. I'm... I'm sure there was lots of that in it. I know there was lots of that in it. And romance is, is, is big in my whole life. I need that sense of romance anyway, not necessarily, you know, the romance of, of the uh, mental uh, patient, but um, the romance of writing, the romance of love, the romance of just being in this world. Did you have a notion back then that to be an artist, you must be unhappy? Uh, no, no, uh, that didn't seem right to be unhappy to me, um, especially when I started to read Henry Miller. And mm. whatever we can say about Henry Miller, uh, the downside of Henry Miller, he was a happy guy, or at least he projected great happiness and, and he sort of um, uh, propagandized to be happy. And, and that, that um, you know, on the you know, more than the surface, really, I, I had at least an intent, which you were talking about, to be happy. Um, right. you know, um, so no, I didn't, I didn't want to be happy. I didn't need to be happy. Um, and uh, sorry, I didn't want to be sad and I didn't need to be sad. Right. Right. And I still don't, um, I can write quite well when I feel good about myself and, you know, sometimes when I'm down, I can write well. Um, but when I'm way down, um, I'm too scared to write. You know? Scared? Scared, yeah, I think. Superstitious. You know, when I get into, that's, if I, you know, um, you will know that I've suffered from depression, as they put it. I call it horror. Um, I get to where, um, you know, superstition, really, the superstitious fear is not necessarily um, approved of superstitions coming from the culture, but like if you write something, it will happen kind of stuff. Um, uh, you know, I just, so I get, I do get into uh, circularities like that. Um, and I don't really, you know, have the sense of, I think, courage and honesty that one needs certainly to be a poet. So there are times when I'm, when I'm away from the light, when I'm, when I'm hiding and ashamed and, like that you know that's yeah part of existence too yeah so when you that first visit after that did you was this the beginning of of the visitations of the dark horse as it were of the of the of the dark piece of of life that would become profound depression and and um not really um i didn't go into my first <laughs> clinical depression until I was 42. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I know. I lasted a long time. Just after that, uh, I discovered the uh, Arthur Janov's primal, primal Scream. Indeed. Which, which uh, John Lennon was on about, and he was my guy. And um, that was all about how you could, um, you know, you, you had this single primal moment that had made you an unreal being. Uh, in your mind, and if you could release the pain of that by screaming, um, by, by connecting with it very viscerally, um, you could suddenly become real again. 
And I got into, you know, I got into uh, primal therapy. Um, and I don't know that it does what he claimed it does, but it was certainly a good for my voice. <laughs> and it was, um, it was certainly uh, a, relief, a, a release kind of valve. Um, I did it for years. I met wonderful women there, um, one of whom I'm currently, you know, had for decades and decades and decades, have been married to. Um, but yeah, I think that gave me a kind of, um, you know, it gave me a worldview, certainly, that I was, you know, everybody else was insane who wasn't doing this. And I was, um, you know, if not fully real and sane, I was certainly, I knew what the hell was going on with this world, you know, which informed my poetry as well. Yeah, I bet. So, yeah. Yeah, Arthur Janoff. Arthur Janoff. Yeah. yeah. I think I did two sessions of that. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. And then uh, maybe a few more, I'm not sure. But I, I felt like it was so raw a thing to do that you leave that room and th with no instruction on self-care. That was it. The follow-up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The surround of uh, which is now called cognitive therapy more. Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just felt like you can't just leave me here, like to go out to this world in this condition. You know, yeah. it's there's I have it, it's it's a bit of a naked feeling at that point. Exactly, and well, and of course, it's not just tears and pain that one gets into. There's also a lot of anger. Yeah. So yeah. so uh, you know, aside from walking around feeling vulnerable, a lot of times I was very angry, and and whatever. Um, violent incidents I've had in my life. A lot of them happened, certainly in the twenties. Um, you know where I just lost it with people. So, um, bit of rage, rageaholism. Rage, I don't know if it was rageaholism, but it was certainly lightning strikes of rage, um, and, and usually they were at appropriate moments. Although you know, one time I thought somebody. And I was sure somebody had raped my first wife and I was just going to talk to him, <laughs> but I wound up grabbing him by the throat and, uh, you know, having to go at him till his face went pasty white. And I just, oh, I thought, what am I doing? And, you know, let him go. I apologize. I'm so sorry, but, um, uh, you know, that happened. That was that uh, piece of wood your father was talking about. I guess so, yeah. I guess so, yeah. He I says, okay, have... let's get that piece of wood. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to use it. Oh, well, nuts, I'm using it. Um, what about your spiritual life and growth? I mean, I, I, I'm going to assume you're not a religious person, but um, there's a lot of people who want a spiritual life. And certainly as a poet, to be able to access mystery and to be able to cultivate that in a spiritual sense, there must have been some pathway that you have had, whether it's consistent or not is irrelevant. But where's your? how would you map your spiritual self? Well, um, I do. I'm definitely a person of the spirit. Um, and without defining it, I have been really since... The, my early 20s, uh, at least. Um, I know when Shamim, my first girlfriend, dropped me when I was 16, 
that I prayed to Jesus to get her back. <laughs> and it didn't work. And I thought, well, the hell with that. The hell with um, him. <laughs> that doesn't work. That's match.com. We're, <laughs> we're good friends now, by the way. Jesus? Um, no, me and uh, Shemin. Ah, oh, okay, yes. Shemin. Okay. Yes. I thought you and Jesus had made up. Uh, you know, I, I, there's some of those teachings that I that I value. Um, I'm mm. not a, I'm not a supernatural friend of Jesus, or he's not my supernatural friend. But right, right. Uh, certainly the teachings. Um, so so in you know early interviews that I had in my twenties, as I began to make my name as a poet, I know I I um, described my mission as being to uh, provoke a spiritual leap in humankind. Um, and I meant, you know, a leap towards, um, you know, nonviolence and, and uh, mutuality and those kind of values, which are still very strong in, in my being and my writing today. Um, and spirit to me, for one, it meant things like school spirit. It meant the, 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 what happens with a body of people who share a goal and infuse it with their enthusiasm and their chi and their belief. Um, and um, then beyond that, my, my sense of spirit is got a lot to do with poetry. Um, how, you know, poetry, um, you know, otherwise it's, it's um, action and reaction out there in the universe. And, but, but when we bring our romantic, a romantic sense to it. Um, when we, when we take it out of the prose world into the, um, the, the poetry world, um, something happens for me, you know, that, right. that infuses it with, with spirit. Um, and that tends to be the Uber spirit that I subscribe to and belong to. There's so much in what you just said it's um, this idea that the poet kind of has the function of transmutation, of taking things and t turning them into, or alchemy at, at the worst of times, but transmutation <laughs> at the best, that whole notion of, of, I mean, do you write to make sense of this existence or do you write without intent where, where um, it comes through you it really varies um often i write i mean the only intent is to follow the words um and i will sit down and i have a phrase or something mm. and i follow it i just the way one is witty in a conversation uh with with someone else um i will be in a sense like witty with myself and just follow a words or a phrase, uh, you know, a long way until I finish, um, not knowing what I was going to say often, or at least at the best of times, having said something that is a teaching to me uh, or an insight into, into who I am or what the world is, or um, perhaps even just an elegant way of stating something that we all know. Um, other times, um, I've often been hired um, to write stuff. Like um, for two years, I was on this kids show, Is Anybody Home? I write for children as well. And, and my, my friend Eric Rosser and I would write at least two songs a week based on the news for children. 
And um, that was that was quite educational too to know that okay, if I apply my focus to a, to something deliberately, uh, well, I you know I mean I have to say that I loved what we wrote. I I think it was wonderful stuff. I'm really glad we did. So if I apply myself deliberately to something, I can quite often take it somewhere. I can I can I can get something out of it. So so you know my intent is to write. Um, and sometimes my intent is to write about specific things. Um, you know, um, we do one thing and sometimes yeah. do the opposite, and it's yin and yang. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> what was that woman who did uh, "Eat, Pray, Love"? Uh, Gilbert. Oh. See, I can't get past Julia Roberts, but okay, Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert, I think. But she said, you know, the writing isn't trying to, you know, say something as much as it's t being able to know the moment when the horse of creativity is galloping by and having the sense to get on. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I thought uh, that was good. There's that too. You know, I have found when there is no horse galloping by and if I have to and I say, well, go and try. And I go and yeah. try, you know, yeah. I can open that door. I should say also that um, sometimes I get a feeling in my thighs. <laughs> it's so weird. And I know a poem is coming, uh, or a song is coming. Um, yeah. In your uh, thighs. In my thighs, I know. I, I had to write about poetry once for a sort of a poetry magazine. And I, well, you get this feeling in your thighs. And they thought, nah, I don't know if that's really teaching people too much. But, uh, you know, I, I tend to visceralize a lot of my, uh, certainly of my, my feelings. And you know, we all know how we visceralize trauma. So um, I, I guess, I don't yeah. know, you know, so, yeah. but I trust that. Yeah, there's a lot in, in somatic memory. You know, the body, uh, the body holds a lot of things in it. Uh, there's a, Eckhart Tolle talks about the pain body uh -huh. that we carry around with us. Yes. Uh, and that, you know, part, that's one of the major functions of ego is to protect the pain body and to keep uh -huh. the narrative going. Uh -huh. Right. So yeah. that, but I am this person and it hasn't been, you know, I am a victim and, you know, all these things. That oh, we yeah. Yeah. But, but also that there's uh, trauma, intergenerational trauma. For sure. Right. Like your father was in, you know, was in, in a place where you're, you can get yourself killed. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Uh, and w there's lots to say that we carry these things with us from generation to generation. Yeah. Even science to say that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not much on needing science to prove things to me sometimes, you know, like the idea that um, we're not allowed to call it meditation anymore. We have to call it mindfulness. And there has to be a oh. neuroscientist who had an MRI taken of a monk. Right. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, for God's sake, are you, are you doing this or not doing it? Because if you're doing it, it has its truth. You know, there's, there's truth to, to experience, right? Yes, yes, there is. I, it, for me, because I also I do meditate every day, um, and have for a number of years. Um, but getting into it, knowing that stuff, knowing that there was science to it, um, because I'm tend to be skeptical, um, was helpful. 
you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, also, just talking about the intergenerational stuff, both my parents were kids in the Second World War in Britain. Um, so my dad was in the, uh, the Blitz of London as a, wow. as, a, as a young man. Well, as, as really, I think he was 12 or 13, was, was actually knocked off a bicycle by the blast of a V2 rocket. Wow. Um, my mother's across the road from where she lived, a V2 took out a house. Unfortunately, the only Jewish people in town, oh which is horrible. Um, but I feel, I feel certainly my mother's anxiety um, about the Second World War deeply. I feel the Second World War deeply. Um, I, I just, you know, the subways, going down into the subways is something yeah. that is so emotional for me. Um, and the songs of the Second World War. So, um, yeah, in the sense of experience, it's not something, I'm not saying I have past lives or anything in it, but I certainly have in my cells that, um, the, the reverberations of that time and hell, I've written an enormous amount about bombs, you know. Oh, so, really? Eh? Yeah, yeah. So, what is it about bombs? Uh, well, I mean, it's not out of line in the sense of the world we, we currently live in or being a young man in the time of the Vietnam War or what happened in Iran and Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. What's going on currently uh, in uh, in, in Africa, I can't remember the name. I keep Libya, Yemen, Yemen, Yemen. I play, I play Yemeni blues. Do you know them? Yeah. I play that. I play that nearly every day just to try and be with the people there and the children who are starving. So um, music, music. Yeah. Helps. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I've written yeah a lot about bombs, you know, um, but I've written a lot about love too. Would you, would you like to hear a poem about? I would love it. All right. This is called, If I Didn't Love the River. If I didn't love the river, how could I say I love you? If I didn't wish for the world to thrive, if I didn't work to change minds, that wouldn't be love. I love you because I love tomorrow, and I want to keep it just a day away forever. If I saw hunger and didn't dream of a feast, if I didn't dream of children well-nourished, what would nourish my love? What would my longing for peace grow fat on? My love of justice is all wound up in my love for you. It wouldn't be love if I didn't love creatures running free, if I didn't support the right of others to love. It wouldn't be love if I gave away my voice so others could add it to the mob. There has to be work to it. There has to be vision. If I didn't love the scorned, the othered, if I didn't love the children of war, how could I truly say I love anyone? When did you write that? Um, I wrote it, um, I guess originally, I probably wrote it about two and a half years ago. Uh, it was a time when I was sinking into a depression. And at the time, I just thought it was pretty awful. And I put it in this sort of trash file. Um, and um, now, so maybe six months ago, I, uh, I discovered it. And um, I sort of edited a little bit six months ago. Mm. Yeah. 
and then you no longer thought it was pretty awful. Was part of the pretty awful the, the beginning of that self-loathing of depression? Uh, yes, yes, yeah. Um, I was going into, I've, I've had, um, since, since I was 42, I've had, uh, let's see, two nine-month depressions, kind of like bad acid trips that don't stop for nine months, a six-month depression, and I guess, what was it, 2018, despite everything, despite being in, in cognitive therapy, meditation, exercise, SSRIs, I was starting to sink. And I tried my hardest not to sink, but I, I started to really, really, really go down. And as you said, that involves, I don't know if I would say self-loathing so much as shame, uh, fear, deep fear, um, and aversion to, to life itself. Um, and uh, I stopped eating. Um, I lost 60 pounds. And, you know, um, there, there began to be fear for my life. So I wound up in, um, for a little while, in Michael Guerin Hospital for a couple of months. And then it was a year in Baycrest Psychiatric, geriatric psychiatric unit. Um, wow. Yeah. Where a I year. Was, a year. So I was 14 months in all in the two hospitals, not much of which I remember. Um, they, um, you know, I mean, they, they tried all the standard, uh, you know, cocktails of drugs, drugs on me, but I remained um, disconnected, um, you know, circular into myself just um, and frightened and uh, horrified by this world and often with a feeling of being an alien um, sort more or less literally that I wasn't that I'd been beamed here accidentally into this horrible world. Um, yeah. So I uh, was there. Yeah. For 14 months. So if your wife came to see you, if that was good, I wanted her to stay. I, I wanted to cling to her. Um, it was okay if she would just be around. Um, but, you know, she was holding down the fortress here. She was, my income was gone. She was holding the house and she was, you know, um, he has a job and all that. And, uh, but she, she came to see me quite often, which was a stretch from where I live in, uh, in Leslieville to, um, up Baycrest. to Baycrest. Yeah. Um, That's but also my, my, uh, I have a rock band and, and, um, my my two guitar players would come once a week each. Oh. The guy I co-wrote my songs with came once a week, um, and my brother, my sister, my sister-in-laws. Um, so I actually had lots of visitations. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it? And they took me for for walks, and you know, my they God, were, they must have been terrified for you. They, I guess they were. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, your wife alone, let, let alone your friends, but your, your, and your siblings would have been, there's that moment you're talking about at the beginning of it where you, you tried to fight it. And it just reminded me, unfortunately, of those incredibly cheesy Tarzan movies where somebody would fall into the quicksand and they couldn't get out. Yes. Yes. Doesn't that stick with you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. yeah. That was the... <laughs> The grim fairy tale of our particular generation. Yes, yeah. was, don't go out there, son. You, something will make you sink and you won't be able to get out. But it, I actually thought about that inexorable pull 
and how uh, I, I'm not someone who, who has so far suffered uh, clinical depression and a friend of mine said recently that it's, uh, it has, it's not about sadness. It's not that you're sad. It's a totally different experience than that, that it's, that it's an oppressively dark force about your thoughts being, you're thinking about your thinking, but the thinking you're doing is, is horrible judgment of yourself, that, you know, mm-hmm. that you're really worth nothing, that you're, you should be ashamed of yourself, that you're an awful person, that who are you to even think you can do anything? And what's the point of all this? Why don't I just, and he said, even getting out of bed, was, well, why would I? I just want to go back into the bed anyway. Well, a lot of that is pretty uh, consistent with how I would describe it. Um, I got to say, though, I never didn't love my poetry. Um, mm. I, I never didn't love my children's songs. I thought they were great and um, they had been done. And it just seemed like the time ahead was a, a, a blip left to go. And then it was tidy up the mess you've made and get the fuck in the grave. Oh, pardon me. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but amazingly, yeah, I, 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 I never, I, I never trashed my poetry or my, my, my children's work. So you ended up doing electroconvulsive therapy, right? Shock therapy. Yes. Yes. Um, that was advised the first time I went to uh, cam H just to get a consult. The, um, the wise guy there, I, I, I mean, not in the pejorative yeah. sense, <laughs> uh, the, pejorative, wise, yeah. the wise old doctor there, he said, you know, if it was me, if I, if I was in your condition, I would do a ECT, you know, and I've, I've read one flew over the cuckoo's nest. So I was yeah. like, yeah, sure. I'm not doing that. Um, and I, I believe it was probably brought up a number of times. Uh, but after 14 months in hospital, they sent me to the, the neurologist and, they, and he said, Drugs aren't going to do anything for this guy. He really should have uh, ECT. And it got down to because I wasn't eating again. Um, and I was, they were scared for my life. It was either going to be a feeding tube or ECT. Um, and I opted, as, as did my wife, we, we, we agreed on ECT. And I had um, 14 treatments over a period of seven weeks, uh, great, great jolts of electricity being through shot through the hemispheres of your brain. Were you, con- were you conscious for those? No, um, or sort of technically, I maybe, but they give you that drug that makes you forget. Um, so you're relaxed, you're super relaxed. So it's not your back arches up and all that, that stuff. I think you just, it kind of goes through you better. Um, and, um, you know, um, it took a while to have a notable or noticeable effect. Um, and apparently, and it, and it affects your memory, your short-term memory, um, the immediate memories. And apparently my wife would come and I'd say, I've been in the hospital for 14 months. Um, you know, I just right, d- right. didn't know. Um, but uh, yeah, after, after 14, after the, 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 the treatments, um, curiously, I, the things you notice, I had 14 treatments. I was in there for 14 months and I write sonnets. Um, <laughs> yes. 14 lines for the, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, I began to feel better strangely enough. Um, 
not that I could really gauge my progress in a sense, but it, I began to be, everybody said, myself again. Um, I was back in a sense. It was, it was kind of like a little version of myself beamed into the middle of myself, uh, but it was, I was back. Um, I let them cut my long beard um, and I took a shower, which was apparently really uh, necessary. Um, I, was, <laughs> I had been scared of water. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And eventually, um, on October the 10th of 2019, I came home. And, um, you know, I was still scared to go out of the house. I was scared to look at my computer. I did not remember. I've written a fantasy trilogy called Spellcrossed. And I didn't even remember that I'd written it. Um, and I had been doing, before I got into the hospital, I had been doing a, um, an album produced by Bob Wiseman. Oh, yeah. Which I had apparently gotten all the way to when it was going to be mixed. Um, and I was, I, I, I was together enough to tell him that um, don't play it for anyone. And he honorably didn't. Um, and... Um, so yeah, I got you know, got in. I started, you know, eventually I started to exercise um, rigorously at home, aerobics. Uh, I, I currently do fifty squats, eighty stride jumps, and um, thirty-three wall push-ups a day, plus long walks. Um, I eat well. I've gained a lot of my weight back, um, and I began to just extend my journeys out of the house, uh, often walking with Marsha, my wife. Um, so I gradually sort of gravitated back. I had some setbacks, but I, and I'm doing therapy still, and I'm on an SSRI still, right. uh, but I, I gradually, uh, began to feel better and the memories started to come back. Hmm. Yeah. Did um, you read your trilogy again? Well, very interesting. Um, I, eventually I did. Um, I was scared to, it's just a superstitious thing. And I know that my, my depressed opinion of it was that it was a terrible failure and an embarrassment to me. Um, but I, I thought, you know what, because memories can be triggered, and I had about two years blocked out, I should say, mm. of my memories. Um, I thought, why not just, since I don't remember the story at all, why not open the third book and just have a look and see if it triggers any memories? And I started to read the thing, and I loved it. It was, um, <laughs> it was captivating. It was beautifully written. Um, I never knew what was happening next, and it was a great story. I know I sound like a braggart, but... No, yeah. no, it's like you, you have the, the beauty of innocence here. Yes, it's I just like, I don't know who wrote this, read. but it's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I couldn't put it down, and I rapidly read, not all in one sitting, but I read through it, and uh, it made me weep at the end. And it was so healing. It was so wow. Healing. You know. Do you uh, feel sometimes, like, sometimes we our burdens are heavier because we truly feel alone, and not just in depression, but in life. Yes. Do you feel that there is kind of that you're part of a web of existence? Do you feel that there's things out there that have companionship with you or or do you just feel like i'm in this i got to get through this uh and i i'm trying to be a decent person 
Um, again, probably both of those in some way. Um, certainly, I feel um, integrated into the web of life. Um, and I know more than intellectually that I am not a singular cut out being, that I am part of something much bigger. Um, my friends visiting me, for one, I mean, all that's that, that group um, effort into my healing uh, is, is convincing enough. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, that, we, that we've um, erupted from perhaps inert matter that has, you know, selected itself forward in evolution to, to get to here. My ancestors, uh, the ancestry is certainly part of me. Um, and the sun and the moon. So I definitely feel um, a comradeship with, with um, the wider world and, and humanity and certainly the animals. Um, mm. And then, you know, I have, you know, because the opposite is sort of true, that the, the being the uh, collapsed star of, of, of isolation and um, on your own, and you, well, there's certainly a feeling in in, in um, depression that doesn't matter how much these people try to help me. It's I can only get myself out of this, and I can't get myself out of this. I know I can't. Right. So, so both, but really more the um, the wider part of something bigger uh, is at work. Yeah, because I would imagine as a, a, a writer and a poet and a novelist that there has to be some f finding your way back to awe and wonder. Yeah. You know, it, it yes. can't just be a gig. Right. Right. It's not just a gig. No. Yeah. No. So yeah, that's uh, awe is with me. <laughs> wonder is with me. Love too. Yeah. Well, I just, the whole idea of everyone who came to see you all the time, I mean, people, you know, it's interesting in, in organized religion, there are constructs to make sure that that happens. So in Judaism, if someone you know isn't well, you're compelled to go and see them. It's not, I'd like to go see them. It's you have to go see them. So mm -hmm. my dad would come home after a day of work, you know, working as a nursing assistant at Sunnybrook Hospital or the Lambert Lodge retirement home, the places he worked good union man and he'd have his dinner and he'd be tired and then he'd go and get his coat and i'd say well, where are you going uh, mr ben whatever because every moroccan is named ben yes. something <laughs> mr mr ben dayan is not feeling well i have to go i gotta go to the hospital and he'd go middle of winter he'd go and he'd just sit there with them for 40 minutes half an hour whatever it was mm -hmm. see a couple of other moroccans who'd shown up and uh then uh, he'd leave. He, he didn't have to try. He wasn't there for a pep talk. He wasn't. He was just bearing witness and being with the person. And I thought that's a lovely thing that being obligated. That there's mm -hmm. obligation is something that we we tend to look upon as a, a shackle, and yet obligation gives structure to caring and love and kindness too. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. yeah, I would say I'm more generous more giving like more willingly generous and, and more giving uh, and nurturing to others than i used to be and and i love it isn't it great 
Yeah, <laughs> it is. It, it, we just had to be old. Uh, yeah, quote unquote, unquote. Well, I mean, you know, that's the thing. You know, the you and me walking down Queen Street when it wasn't uh, Yorkdale without a roof. Yeah, you know, when it was an exciting place to be, and but you know, we had our mojo. We were, we were there to tell everybody we were there. Yep. Right. Yep. And there's something beautiful about the 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 autumn of life, where you just get to be as opposed to constantly do, 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 look at me over here. I'm over here. You know? Right. Right. I, I kind of feel I'm at, I'm at my peak. In, right. In, right. In many ways though. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for that. Yeah. So now, now when you look forward, do you look with trepidation or do you look with a mix of hope and trepidation or. Um. Well, I certainly have hope, um, which I didn't have when I was sick. Um, and um, I tend to nip the old trepidation in the bud if I can. I mean, the, the sober truth of it is that we all uh, don't live forever. And um, I know that. And um, I don't like thinking too much about, uh, you know, winding up in an extended care facility. That kind of stuff is just... Right. Uh, doesn't doesn't improve my mood for some reason, uh, but um, you know I do have hope. Uh, um, to put it mildly, uh, I can often be so exuberant, and the hope, in terms of just my forward progress as a as an artist, makes me uh, uh, make contacts and, and promote myself and take chances to move forward in ways that you just don't do when, when you don't have hope. Um, so hope is, is very, um, you know, it's a great lubrication of the gears here. And uh, uh, boy, am I, am I ever glad to have it. I bet. So in the end, does it, does it matter if there's a God? Does God have anything to do with the journey? Um, well, in my sense of, of God, um, which is sort of kind of like the magical universe or magic. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. There, it has, it has a, a lot, like, you know, Kurt Vonnegut said, it, it, it's just a gravel pit out there, meaning the universe. Um, and that's, it, it certainly keeps it from being a gravel pit. Um, and it certainly gives it the romance that, that life, that needs um mm. so you know um call it what you will um but we need it yeah yeah whether we think of it or not uh, is the way i often think about mm -hmm. it it's that it is i mean you know uh i mean vonnegut who i loved growing up uh had more of a cynical eye than I have, you know, I, I find I'm more, more of a hopeful person about this little experiment we're in, you know, of, of being alive. And uh, so Stephen Jenkinson wrote a book called Die Wise. And uh, he said, life is not the human lifespan. The human lifespan is the opportunity for a moment to be part of life. Nice. That, yeah, I love that because we get so involved in who we, 
you know, it's like the old film festival joke or the guy at the front table at the party go yelling out, who am I? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I did the insurance on this film. <laughs> it's just like, okay, all right. <laughs> and we do seem to have a wiser self, which is something I've, I've learned from the sort of slightly Buddhist oriented therapy. Um, you were talking earlier about how we might easily tend to identify with our victimized self, our, mm. our done to self, our pain body. Um, but I certainly learning to um, bring my attention to this, you know, wise self that is also uh, part of my being. Uh, and and um, uh, that, that really helps to relativize um, how how much you know i can i can add the gravity to the to the downside of stuff yeah and there to me i think i was speaking about this at the beginning there is a true self that is that is not uh subject to the 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 winds of of constant change which is what you know life can be mm. there is a true self and that if one comes so the difference being and i've spoken about this on the podcast before the i am robert priest or i am mm. there's a difference because robert priest part or the ralph ben murgy part becomes the part that we've spent our life you know in constant renovation of mm -hmm. right yeah you know always sort of puttering around trying to fix up you know the, the sagging eaves troughs of who we are. Um, but the true self is what is attached to that life, that life flow, that creation flow of, of the universe that is constant and that you are a part, you are the molecular piece of, you know, mm -hmm. the, the little moment of stardust that it becomes a spark of you. It, it is not, doesn't die. It moves but it's but it is a true self so i've been meditating on that lately more that that you know while i'm taking a walk i can either employ my ego which is a form of resistance to what is or i can just be with what is and if i'm with what is then i'm able to actually activate the that rock where the water comes over it you know where the water uh -huh. falls right yes. the, this, the waterfall is all of the event and this and the that and the oh, I see the breakfast and the you know and but the the rock is the true self that, you know that is there and just seeing the dissonance of that I'm looking at something that isn't moving through something that is relentlessly moving mm -hmm. right so yeah. yeah the circumstances of life can can distract you from the actual self that you are mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so I, I find that part interesting well yeah. my friend um i'm i'm very uh happy that uh you have um that you took that advice and uh i'm assuming that uh ect is not you know it's not the flavor of the month it's not the politically correct thing to do uh Right. Would you suggest to people that they take it a little more seriously? Um, you know, I, I, I'm comfortable giving my story. And I know that it's not everybody's story, that some people um, don't get a good effect from it um, and ha have a memory deficit anyway. 
but I know, and I know that right now there is a move on to ban it, which is partly why I've chosen to speak about it. Um, but the statistics on it um, are excellent, which is that um, your likelihood of getting better or you know improving uh, are about seventy percent with ECT, and they're about twenty nine percent with drugs. Um, you know, what they are if going into the forest with, with a shaman, I'm not sure, um, you know, like there's many ways of, of yeah. uh, but, but of, of those two choices, um, that's the statistics. Um, but, you know, I posted something on my Facebook page and a lot of people chimed in and there were definitely people there. It was almost equal, I think, on people who had had benefit from it and people who hadn't. But I do think it would be a shame to take away the choice. I think um, it yeah. ought to still be something in, in the bag of tricks that um, when you really get to it um, might be an option. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. yeah I don't yeah. want to do it again, though. Right. But on the other hand, here we are. Yes. Yeah. Right. And we may not have been here right now. So I'm, Right. I'm, exactly. So I'm glad that you're here. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm glad to be alive. I bet you are. And I bet uh, your family is glad to see you uh, doing, uh, what was it, 50 squats or 100 squats? Um, 50 squats, <coughs> 80 yeah. stride jumps. My God, man. <laughs> <laughs> I got good knees, let's face it. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you're rocking the knee thing. And I don't know if I could do that. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I, I, I like to give people a bit of a blessing when I'm finished with uh, the conversation. I'd like, I'd like to bless your father for t telling you he's sorry. I, th I think that that is uh, just a beautiful thing. And God love him for doing that. Yes, uh, I, 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 I want to bless your wife for walking in that room and seeing you in that way and going home and lying in the dark and thinking, where's my beloved? Uh, but persevering. So God love her and your bandmates and your siblings and everyone who, who stood by you. And, and uh, that wise old doctor at CAMH, who said, if it was me, I'd do it. <laughs> um, and I want to bless you for everything you do, uh, for all of the work that you've uh, put out there into the world, the beautiful poetry, the writing, the, the rock band. The, I, I always saw you as someone of, of fantastic energy who, who uh, had actual things to say about what's going on in this world instead of just look at me. Um, so uh, I bless you for that. And uh, I, I hope that uh, you continue on uh, and gain a little more weight and do a few more stride jumps and uh, keep it rocking and rolling, my friend. Keep it going. Thank you. And you know, my blessing is um, may your evils fade and your good deeds outlast you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. You take care of yourself. You too. Robert Priest. I'm Ralph Bemergi. That's not that kind of rabbi. Uh, Robert, is there a, a website that people can go to to get your work? Uh, Robertpriest.org. No caps, no spaces.
Okay, so robertpriest.org, and I will uh, repeat that on my Facebook page for people interested. In the meantime, uh, I just want to uh, remind you that there is a Facebook page, you're not that kind of rabbi. There is a Jewish men's retreat uh, that's going on in a month, a virtual one. I've been going for years. It is fantastic. If you're a, a nice Jewish boy who would like to have some male companionship on the spiritual journey, it's a wonderful thing that we do. Uh, this time it's only for a Friday night and for a Saturday. It's not, obviously not a whole weekend. Um, but you're more than welcome. Go to menchwork.org or just Google JMR29 and you'll find it. J Jewish Men's Retreat, JMR29. Uh, and I'm pushing that a bit because uh, we still have room for a few more men and we've had, we have lots of people coming, but it's really wonderful. Uh, and I suggest it. Kavanaugh.ca, uh, K-A-V-A-N-A-H.ca. If you're looking for spiritual counseling, I provide it and I'm glad to do it. And it's all in complete confidentiality. Uh, so you can go there and let me know that you're interested or you can DM me on, on, uh, on Twitter, and uh, I'll, I'll be glad to uh, follow the conversation. In the meantime, you take care of each other, and um, that's about it. See you later. See you later. Thanks, Ralph. Thanks, Robert.
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.